writersradio.ca, where writers speak their art, welcomes you, dear listener. This is where creative work from near and far expresses the provocative beauty of our imagination. Host Carol Harmon introduces us to the UK-based writer Una O'Connell. Today on Writers Radio, I'm pleased to introduce Una Susalie O'Connell, who will read from her family memoir, The Absent Prince, In Search of Missing Men, which was published in the UK in June 2020. Una is a writer and educator who has worked within both traditional and alternative educational environments. She now works independently as a consultant, focusing on belonging and inclusion in family and culture. Una lives in North Hertfordshire in England. The Absent Prince draws from deep resources of journals, personal letters, and other documents written by family members over several generations. This book goes far beyond documentation, into an investigation of family trauma initially caused by war, ongoing as intergenerational trauma. This is one essence of our collective human history, conflict and its aftermath, the heroic and troubled attempt by the human spirit to rise above war's legacy. One legacy of war is a cultural pattern which has arisen of men being physically absent or emotionally unavailable in family life, not only through actually fighting a war, but by continuing the pattern of absence through work and educational customs. Una will read two excerpts from The Absent Prince. The first focuses on her paternal grandfather, Harry O'Connell, a veteran of the First World War. The second excerpt introduces her father, Peter O'Connell. And with no further ado, here is Una O'Connell. My grandfather lived with us until he died in 1968, when I was nine years old. Grandpa used to spend a lot of time in his room. As a small child, I was curious to know what he did in there every day. One afternoon, I crept along the corridor and looked through the keyhole. He was resting in bed, and I was shocked to see a huge hole in his leg. I felt a combination of horror and betrayal. Why hadn't my grandfather told me about this? We were a team, he and I. I would climb onto his lap and lay my head on his chest, listening to the thump, thump, thump of his beating heart, inhaling the smell of whiskey and pipe tobacco, and feeling the scratch of his tweed jacket against my cheek. So Grandpa had a secret, and it was clearly a big one, one he couldn't share with me. I wondered who he talked to, about his leg with the hole you could poke a stick through, and how it came to be there. 
Harry O'Connell was born in Ireland in 1891, the seventh of eight children. When he was nine years old, his eldest brother Jack was banished from the family home for dating a Protestant girl. My great-grandfather left money on the kitchen table with a note instructing his son to buy a one-way ticket to America. No one knows for sure what happened to Uncle Jack, but it's thought that his outspoken opinions led to his early death in a street fight. Harry was sent to St. Patrick's College Cavan on a clerical scholarship and then to the National Seminary. He became increasingly disillusioned with the hypocrisy of the clergy and, having witnessed an intoxicated priest lose his balance in the choir loft and fall to an ignominious death on the altar, Harry renounced the Catholic Church. He left for England and in 1914 he signed up as a private with the Royal Fusiliers. He spent the next two years on the Western Front. Unlike Jack's misdemeanour, a spoiled priest could not so easily be concealed, and when Harry left Ireland to fight for the Protestants, he became the second son to be ostracised by the family. My grandfather fought at the Battle of the Somme and was wounded at Highwood in July 1916. The Royal Fusiliers suffered particularly high losses, including all their officers. That summer, two British cameramen were sent to the Western Front to compose a pictorial record of World War I. In one frame, the camera pans a company of Royal Fusiliers. The men stare unflinchingly into the lens. Some smile and wave their caps and rifles. One man is wearing a German Pickelhaube. Did he find the helmet lying on the field of battle? Or did he have to kill the Bosch by running his bayonet into the soldier's soft flesh, cracking ribs as he twisted it and withdrew the blade? Did my grandfather kill Germans with his bayonet too? I suppose he must have done. According to my dad, Harry rarely spoke about the war and, when pressed for details, would simply say, it was the greatest experience of my life. How does a man find words to speak about such things? How does he integrate his battle memories into a post-war life and his subsequent roles as a husband and father? There is a fellowship of fate during war that has a quality and depth that seems to take precedence over everything that follows, even family. At the core of extreme physical pain, aching loss and lifelong grief lies love. Harry was 26 years old when he married Grace, who was five years his senior. My grandmother came from a family of successful entrepreneurs, adventurers and pioneers. Grandpa grew up in more modest circumstances. The son of an Irish farmer, he had no experience of homesteading or gold digging in far-flung corners of the British Empire. He was a man in exile, and unlike the Arnold brothers, Harry did not feel the steady hand of his male ancestors guiding him from behind. Harry never took Grace home to meet his family in Ireland, and not simply because his new wife was an English Protestant. Following the Easter Rising 
and the Irish War of Independence, men like my grandfather were no longer welcome in Ireland. As a Catholic Irishman who had voluntarily served in the British Army, he belonged neither to the Unionists of the North nor to the Republicans of the South. Harry O'Connell was a man untethered, afloat in a vast ocean without islands. He had ceased to belong to his family, his country and his religion, and for the rest of his life he struggled to recover a sense of solid ground. I never knew my grandfather to get angry or sad, and he was rarely joyful. I imagine that by the time I was born, his grief had withdrawn to a place so deep that no one could hear the weeping. He had no hobbies, no male friends. He never went for walks or out to dinner. And yet, in spite of his reclusive tendencies, Harry was extremely popular. Perhaps due to his own unspeakable experiences, he acquired the reputation of being a good and gentle listener, especially with young people. He was mellow and charming, and no one could have imagined the aching grief caused by his wartime experiences and the huge hole it blew through his heart. My grandfather survived by a process of concentrated withholding, both of his joy and his rage. He rarely judged or advised. He never enthused or shared. He simply listened. For those who knew him, his priest-like ability to pay attention was a great gift. For those who loved him, for those like his son, who needed his guidance and approval, his warmth and engagement, it was a profound loss. In 1978, my father, Peter O'Connell, was living in Bulgaria, where he heard tell of an old woman in the mountains near Sofia who could accurately predict the day of your death. Dad told me of his intention to visit her. He thought it would be useful to know how many years he had left, so he could prioritise his interests and plan his time better. I never had the courage to ask him about his visit, but I often wondered whether he lived his life differently with an anticipated date of death forever in mind. It's not something you can easily forget, unless you develop Alzheimer's, which my father did, so perhaps that fact got swallowed up with so many of the others. I wonder too whether the date the oracle predicted turned out to be the correct one, September 5th, 1998. In a talk I gave at a memorial dinner to celebrate the life of my father, I said that the religion with which Peter most identified was Buddhism. It's the only one which makes any real sense, he used to say. Twenty years later, having read his letters and diaries, I recognise that sense had little to do with it. He settled on Buddhism rather like a butterfly alights on a bluebell. It was a feeding station, a brief opportunity to rest a while, before resuming his lifelong search for meaning and connection. 
Peter pursued many different traditions, from Christian science to Indian mysticism, but, like a homing pigeon, he invariably circled back to his Catholic roots. Throughout his life, he remained both repelled and captivated by Christianity. When I first started reading my father's diaries, they made me so angry that I considered burning them. I was appalled by his narcissism and careless cruelty to women, and I didn't want Polly and Lucy to know how selfish and insensitive their grandfather had been. I didn't destroy them, but I did banish them to a far corner of the attic for 15 years. Today, I am relieved that I kept them, because without access to my father's diaries, my own writing would have deviated from a larger truth. I have learnt too from my mother's journals and letters that she had her own part to play in the story and that the roles of victim and offender were not as clearly defined as I had imagined. My father was expected to graduate from the University of Cambridge with a first-class degree, but his mother's death a month before his finals devastated him. He lost momentum, flunked some of his papers, and was awarded an upper second. In September of 1947, he accepted a teaching position at a boys' boarding school in rural Hampshire. His ultimate goal was to work in a secondary school or in adult education. But first, he needed a safe haven and a relatively undemanding job. In his diary, my father writes, I am conscious of deep, repressed antagonism towards Dad. Mother's agony is very closely associated with my own distress, and it is not remarkable that I should feel bitter towards the man who caused much of her sorrow. Yet this resentment towards Dad conflicts with love, and the resultant feeling is one of guilt. I believe this is at the root of my trouble. He decided to seek psychological treatment on the national health, but discovered that this was only possible if he agreed to be hospitalised. He decided, therefore, to see a psychiatrist and approached his general practitioner for a recommendation. Peter writes, Dr. Bell was rather stupid, saying he could not think why I wanted such treatment. Just because I don't yammer like an idiot, he thinks I'm imagining it all. I was in my late twenties when I first started seeing a psychotherapist and received mixed reactions from my parents. My mother was horrified, insisting that I wasn't a crazy person and expressing alarm at what her Swiss family would think if they knew. Dad was shocked and said, rather sadly, I always thought you were the one thing I'd done right in my life. In 1952, Peter moved to the United States, where, for five years, he taught the sons of the Gilded Elite at Groton School in Massachusetts. My father had a great capacity for love and devotion. God and his father were inaccessible to him, and after his mother died, he chose to dedicate himself to the boys in his care. It was with them that Peter felt most alive, perhaps because what he experienced was instinctive 
and uncomplicated. In spite of its academic brilliance and attention to morality and manners, Groton School remained, by its very nature, a holding pen for the sons of wealthy and eminent men. The Groton boy had no regular contact with his father and little opportunity to share with him his scholastic and athletic successes. He was denied the opportunity to learn from, talk to, or be angry with his father on a daily basis. Peter knew what father hunger felt like, and he had an intuitive capacity to tap into the hearts of those boys who, like him, missed their father's physical and emotional presence. In a letter, Mr. Kellogg quotes his son Tony. If all masters were like Mr. O'Connell, school would be a wonderful place. In 1953, Peter was still unmarried. He was handsome, intelligent and caring. So why, at the age of 34, had he not settled down with a nice girl? An unofficial campaign was launched at Groton to find Mr. O'Connell a wife, a movement which included the faculty wives, the boys, and even the young Irish girl who cleaned Peter's rooms. One of Cary Grant's four spouses allegedly divorced him on the grounds that she was incapable of being his perfect wife. My father's own definition of perfect was always just beyond his reach, but he was faithful in pursuing it whenever the opportunity presented itself. He writes, I feel tired and dispirited, and am conscious of intense spiritual loneliness and emotional starvation. I am so depressed by the ease with which I can charm women. I am incredibly inhibited, unable to feel any spontaneous impulse, a prey to anxiety and doubts. And in spite of all these disabilities, women fall in love with me and I'm never refused. I get glimpses of freedom when great gusts of passionate poetry blow through me like a Pentecostal revelation and give me a feeling of almost divine competence. When I am free, I shall owe a huge moral debt to those who are suffering from the pains and sorrows that I have myself endured. I hope I shall be wise and good enough to resist self-indulgence and choose service to those still standing in the shadows. Over the course of his life, Peter was described as Christ-like, the finest character I have ever met, a benevolent despot, and a cruel and selfish tyrant. Some saw my father as a genius, others as charmingly eccentric, and a few thought he was quite mad. He could be vain and self-obsessed, even cruel, but his intentions were always for the higher good and for greater happiness in what he described as his own intolerable domestic situation. He desperately wanted to be a loving husband and a guiding father settled in his life with me and my mother, and creative in his work. The irony is that many of my friends, especially my male friends, idolise my dad. One once said to me, rather wistfully, Mr O'Connell is more of a father to me than my own father.
been listening to Una Susily O'Connell read from her family memoir, The Absent Prince in Search of Missing Men. This book is available through bookstores in the UK and internationally through Amazon in both print and ebook editions. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Writer's Radio, broadcasting the beautiful, fanciful, and engaging work of talented writers from our neighborhood and yours. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to hear writers' bios, podcasts of previous programs, and to subscribe to our announcements and notifications list. Thanks for tuning in. 